0: All right, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. That should be a pretty easy chapter to find, I hope. So let me give you a little,
1: um, real quick, just a little rundown of what we're going to do tonight um, as background. Because you might say, Ash, aren't we in summer psalms series? Why are we not um, doing a psalm this evening? And... Uh, the answer is because I, I I sort of triple booked this week, okay? So it just so happened that at Mother Church, Greg was out of town, so I was preaching at Mother Church. And then obviously I have a regular services here. And then tomorrow night, um, there is a college group that meets during the summers on Monday nights called Theo Nights. And basically they, they pick a theological topic. Um, and, and then they worked through it over the course of the Monday nights during the summer. And so they asked me to speak at it. And so at the beginning of the week, I thought, you know what, I'm going to write three different sermons this week. Uh, and then at the end of Monday, I was like, I don't have anything started. Uh, and, then, and then my kids were in a swim meet, their city swim meet at the end of the, it was just a mess. And so ended up what happened, I was like, all right, I got one sermon um and I'm just going to preach it four times. So, so this is number 3 um and but it's it's an odd one. Um and I'll tell you about that in just a second. So, let me start with our our text tonight. Um it starts in in Genesis um chapter 1 verses 27 and 28 and then we will skip down to Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 through 25. So it begins, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now down to 215. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every animal of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. And then the man said... At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Let's go
0: to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we open up your word, um, God, as we, as we touch
1: on a delicate subject, uh, this evening, um, we ask God that you would move in our hearts as, as we read and study your word. God, that you would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, shine a light on our hearts and our minds, on our consciences, um, and that, um, God, we would, uh, see your word for what it says, uh, that we would apply it to our lives. God, that we would live in light of it and that we would take the truths that we find there. Um, into the world. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this objective source. Uh, we thank you that we do not, um, God, trust in um, or look to um, our culture, um, our our world, uh, our politicians, our celebrities to define who we are. Um, we look to you in the way you've designed us, and the character that you have called us to uh, through your word. God, thank you for that. Um, we ask that you bless uh, this time as we study. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, the deal is, is that this Theonites that we are doing, uh, the topic for the summer was, uh, so what, like I said, what they do is they take a um, a section of, of theology, And then they sort of dig in on different topics within that. So this year, this summer, the topic was anthropology. So what they mean by that is not like anthropology, like you study at a public university where you're looking at bones and artifacts and things like that, but anthropology as in the study of man, right? What is the doctrine of man in terms of of the teaching of the Bible? And so that's been the theme all, all summer. And they called me up and they said, hey, man, will you preach on this night? And I was like, sure, I will. And they were like, here's the topic. Your topic is, um, tell us what it means to be made male and female, right? And I was like, cool, nothing controversial, you know, the simple one, uh, I'm pretty sure the case is, is that like, they asked everybody else first and they picked all the other ones and then they had this one and they were like, well, Ash will talk about that. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll run his mouth for a little bit. So, um, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run my mouth for a little bit, um, it's, it's in some ways a super simple topic or it should be, right? But yet it is culturally, um, because of the, the moment that we find ourselves in, um, it is not simple at all, but we're going to, we could, we could deal with a lot of different issues. We could approach it from a lot of different ways, but we're going to kind of zoom in on, on, on one basic idea or two sides of one basic idea. And that is, um, that men and women, male and female male are created equal in their image-bearing natures, and yet at the same time, they are distinct in, in what we're going to sort of overly complex call our asymmetric complementarity, okay, asymmetric complementarity, so we're similar and equal in certain ways, but we are also different and distinct in other ways. So let's begin with that idea of, a, of the male and female are equal in their image bearing. And we're going to zoom in on one particular place, verse 27 of chapter 1, and particularly the last clause of that, where it says not only that mankind is made in the image of God, but that he created them male and female. So verse 27 points to the reality that unlike any other creature in existence, We were created in God's image and to bear God's image, and that moreover, both men and women bear the image of God. Both men and women, male and female, bear the unique likeness of God. Some commentators have tried to suggest that what's going on there is that maybe we could say men are 50 percent of the image bearers and women are 50 percent of the image bearers. And therefore, together, there is a full image bearing kind of uh, uh, picture of God. But I don't I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's what we're seeing here. Men in and of themselves bear the complete image of God. Right. There's nothing lacking in that. Um, women in and of themselves bear the image of God. And so God is, is, and this passage in the scriptures is blatantly speaking to their equality as image bearers. And it says it blatantly in that place, but there's also hints of the equality that we find all throughout the text. So, for example, in verse 26, it says that they both were given dominion over creation. Verse 28 says God blessed them, both of them. Further in verse 28, it talks about how both of them are given this thing that we call the cultural mandate, which is the command by God to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 2, Adam is naming the animals, right? And he comes to a point where he realizes there's no mate that is appropriate for him and the word is suitable for him there. And that Hebrew word has a specific connotation. It indicates correspondence between things, something that is intrinsically like something and, and matches to it and, and, and is, uh, is appropriate for it. Okay? And so um, there's a picture even there of saying if man is made in the image of God, then this suitable one who is his mate is also like that. Eve is formed from a piece of Adam, a rib from his side. And what's cool, and I had never really thought about this until until this week studying this passage, the first words that we hear humanity utter, right? The first words that a human being ever says is a love poem. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam is saying, she is from me and she is like me, and literally she is made of me. She's the same stuff as me. When later on in the New Testament, it tells us that when a man loves his wife, he loves himself, there's a sense in which that's literal, right? When we read Genesis 2, 24, that the husband and the wife become one flesh in their marital and sexual union. It's it's pointing in part to the fact that, in a way, we used to be one flesh. We are remembering that one flesh union in a way because we both came from that first flesh that was Adam's. Our shared image bearing means that we share in dignity. We share in worth. We share in the calling, the general calling that God has on our lives that he gives to no other creature in all of existence, as far as we understand. When we get to the New Testament, that language is even kind of doubled down on and given another you know, extension because we find that not only are we both bearers of the image of God in our identities as male and female, but we also share in this new identity that we had in Jesus Christ. And so Galatians reminds us that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, right? There is no racial distinction within God, uh, within Christ. There's neither slave nor free. There's no economic distinction within Christ. And and the last section is that there is no male or female, that in Christ we are equal in terms of our salvation and our belonging to him. So the first thing is, I think, pretty obvious, the idea that we are made equally in the image of God. Now, before, though, we get into the next section of the asymmetrical yet complementary roles of men and women, there's something that we have to say that five years ago would not have needed to be said. Um, five years ago would have been something so inane, so foolish, that it would have, had, would have gone without say. But think about it like this. So we have these two people, Adam and Eve, male and female, who we just talked about. And we made the specific point that they share equally in bearing the image of God. And the reason we have to make that point is because they are intrinsically different. What I mean by that is imagine if there had been two clones in the garden. There had been an Adam and an Adam, and they looked exactly alike. They were clones. Well, when you saw those two clones, you would have said, well, of course they're equal, right? They're exactly alike. They certainly share in equally in the image bearing. Or if it had been an Eve and a clone of Eve. You would have said, certainly they must share in this. If one of them has the, bears the image of God, the other one must share the image of God because they're both exactly alike. But the reality is, is that in the case of Adam and Eve, they are not exactly alike. They are different in some ways. And here is the question. How on earth in Eden, the beginning of creation, when there was no culture yet, no society yet, no patriarchy, Yet, no hegemony yet. None of those things existed. How on earth could we tell the difference between Adam and Eve? Well, the answer is super simple and I don't mean to be crass, but it's about genetics and it's about genitals. Okay, we could look to the man and look to the woman and know that they were intrinsically different because of their biology.
0: Boys have boy parts. Girls have girl parts. Boys have an X and a Y chromosome pair.
1: Girls have an X and an X chromosome pair. Can there be abnormalities in those two things? Sure. But as rare as they are, they still don't negate the determinative nature and rule of our biological gender. So obviously we are living in this trans moment that would have us believe that biological sex characteristics are insignificant to our gender identity right? They're not determinative in any way. But here's the truth that the scriptures would teach us. Not only are they important, they are primary, okay? And they are determinative characteristics to our gender identity. They are the single most important aspect of our gender identities, okay? We are going to talk in a minute a little more about gender roles, which the Bible gives us. There are certain ways that the Bible addresses the different roles that men and women take on. But those are honestly sort of secondary. They're the next thing down. They are not as basic and primary as our biology. And then we could talk again about gender norms or gender traits. And those are not unimportant either, but we also still remember and and recognize that those are oftentimes culturally associated, right, societally associated, you may find very different gender norms, gender traits in different places. It's interesting how little the Bible talks about things like gender traits. It certainly discusses gender roles in the context of The function of how we relate to each other, particularly and most importantly as husbands and wives, but as families, as churches, as communities, we see some gender role talk in the Bible, but we don't see a lot of gender trait talk. And what I mean by that is likes and dislikes, dispositions, temperament, interests. Again, there are certainly norms to these things in any given culture. And those norms aren't unimportant, right? There's something to be said about saying, hey, if the norm of a society is this way, something's going on if you're intentionally trying to buck that, okay? And yet at the same time, we can also acknowledge that we don't know exactly sometimes where some of those norms come from. Are they a function just of society? Are they a function of the wiring of our own brains and and emotions and things like that? Um, Sometimes it's hard to narrow that down, but regardless, either way, what we can say is that those, those norms are not things that are necessarily intrinsically moral, biblically defined, whereas some of those gender roles and particularly are biological gender is very clearly defined. Again, the transgender movement would sort of talk out of both sides of its mouth. At one point, gender is nothing more than a social construct and we don't have to be beholden to it more than anything else. But then the next moment it is absolutely necessary that I identify with the stereotypical aspects of a gender And I have to apply them to my life because I can't do anything else because that's just who I am.
0: So all that to say, maybe something that should be obvious, is that men and women
1: are distinct and different. And it is
0: God who has delineated the two. But even though they are equal in many ways, men and women have these different gender roles.
1: And that's part of what we want to talk about in in the next section. This asymmetric and yet complementary roles that that men and women have. In the same way that there's blatant statements about male and female equality in Genesis 1 and 2, there are also blatant and subtle statements about this complementarity. So, for example... um, In Genesis 1 and 2, when we begin, we simply look at the fact that Adam was created first and not Eve. So you might say, well, Ash, that's not very fair. That doesn't seem like a great reason that, one, there should be hierarchy of some place. Just because he got created first, well, honestly, the New Testament seems to think it's significant. Paul seems to think it's significant in his letter to Timothy. Um, there's something to be said for the fact that man was created first and woman was created afterwards. Moreover, Eve was made from Adam, not vice versa, implying his headship. Now, again, notice how these things, there's a connection between them. While we talk about on one side, their equality is a function of the fact that Eve was made from Adam, then also at the same time, Their distinctiveness is made from the fact that one of them was there first and the other one came from the other person. Although to just add sort of another layer of complexity, the New Testament makes us recognize that since Adam, there has not been a single person born who did not come from woman again, right? And so Eve came from man, we all come from woman. And so again, there's a tie there pointing towards both our equality and our distinctiveness. Eve is created to be, what's the text tell us? To be Adam's helper. That language of helper is hierarchical, right? There is a, someone who comes along and helps is distinct from the person who was there doing the job in the first place. Again, not talking about a distinction of worth or dignity, but maybe to say that their responsibilities at least are a little bit distinct. Notice Eve was named by Adam in the passage. Another picture of headship, all right? Adam is naming all the animals, why? To demonstrate his dominion and his, his authority over them. And then he comes and is also given the job of naming Eve. When God gives humanity itself a name in Genesis 5, you may have never noticed that. In Genesis 5, he says, hey, what are we going to call all these people together? And the answer is, we are going to call them man. Not we are going to call them woman. We are going to call them man. Why? Because in the
0: male identity, there is a headship there over all of created humanity. All these points make us at least
1: give us a picture or a hint that God has ordained leadership on the part of husbands and helpership on the part of wives. Okay. Um, And that's another important thing that we need to make a distinction about. We are not talking about the roles of all men to all women in all circumstances, right? Okay. Men do not have headship unilaterally over all women. um, But but husbands do have headship over their wives and over their families. We see an outworking of that in the church, which becomes a kind of family where there are uh, male elders who have headship, in a sense, over their congregations. And so we see this picture of headship, particularly within the concept of marriage. Now, the problem is, obviously, with this in our modern culture, is this egalitarian mindset that we have. We don't like this stuff. We don't like the idea of any kind of hierarchy, particularly when the, the, the people in the hierarchy are otherwise equals. Right? We don't like that. It, it's un-American. Okay? Um, it seems unenlightened in some way. But here's the deal. It shouldn't be. The entire Christian life is about authority and submission, all of it. And nothing that God has decreed should we see as demeaning. Does that make sense? If God has initiated roles of authority and submission and it is from God, then those are not things that we should have shame or see as demeaning. If God tells us to submit to Christ, that's good. If God says submit to your parents, that's good. If God says submit to the governing authorities, that's good. That's part of the tragedy, I think, of the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s anyway. Because what it did is it somehow devalued the role of women in society by basically saying, women, you are only valuable if you are doing man things, right? It said, being a wife, being a mother, those are beneath you. Those are roles of the patriarchy trying to make you submit. You want to shake that stuff off, women. The only way you'll ever be actualized as an individual is if you start taking on more typically male roles. If you want to be equal, you need to, in a sense, cease being a woman and be like a man. The logic of the abortion movement is anchored in that very idea, right? The, the way the argument kind of goes is, hey, um, it's not fair that men don't have to be pregnant, Okay, and probably many women in here would agree with that, right? It's not fair that men don't have to be pregnant. Therefore, women ought to have a right to not be pregnant too. That's the logic of it. And what does that create? Well, it created the situation in which we have had 60 million plus children killed uh, in the last 50 years. You can also see how that argument leads into the transgender movement. Though, interestingly, the feminist movement and the transgender movement are not friends. You can ask J.K. Rowling about that. But you can see how someone might say, well, I have to be, I have to live as the other person or there's no way that I can be and live a meaningful life. And yet the Bible would point us to the fact and say the burdens and the joys of motherhood, the burdens and the joys of of uh, being a, a wife, the burdens and joys of womanhood in general
0: are something that God has chosen for you, has assigned to you, and therefore shouldn't
1: be seen as as negatives or demeaning or something lacking. But you say, but Ash, oftentimes they are, and the problem with that is is I think we all realizes that sin has entered into the world. In fact, by some estimations, you could argue that the reason sin entered into the world is because both Adam and Eve were not living into their gender roles at the beginning. So probably you have noticed this as you've read the story of of the fall in Genesis 3. Um, As Eve is being tempted by Satan, where is Adam at? Where is leading, protecting, headship, authority Adam at? The answer is, we don't know. He's not there. He's somewhere else. And Eve, on the other hand, instead of being a helper, she is being the opposite of one, right? She is making unilateral decisions that will literally destroy her and her husband. This dance of equality and service and headship and submission is catastrophically marred by the fall. Okay, it's been broken since the fall and we are still living in the brokenness of it. And we see the key to that brokenness in Genesis 3.16. So this is the section where God pronounces a curse on on Adam and Eve. And there's other things that are involved there. But the central piece, I think, at least for our discussion, is in 3.16. And it's a weird thing, passage to translate. Different versions have it translated in a in little bit different ways but here's I think the gist of it it says your desire talking to the woman your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you I think the best way of understanding what the curse is implying in that passage is to say this in our sin men dominate and women revolt okay okay Men use their authority and headship in a domineering way, and women tend to try to usurp that headship. Certainly it can happen the other way sometimes. Instead of leaning into, uh, domination and usurpation, we can go the other way. Men can lean into their passivity, right? They can basically say, man, I don't, I don't want to take any responsibility for anything. I, I want to, you know, just live over here and do as I please. Um, and women can also lean into that. They can, they can, uh, I, I heard somebody make the comment and they said, we can either be, sometimes we can lean into being uh, deadbeats and doormats, okay? Men can lean into their passivity and be deadbeats. Women can lean into their passivity and end up being doormats to a domineering um, husband. But the reason there is a war between the sexes that you sometimes hear about is because of Genesis three sixteen, men dominate as part of the curse. Women revolt against that domination. But the reality is, is this: it wasn't always that way. It doesn't have to be that way. It wasn't intended to be that way. The final verse of Genesis chapter two, and the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. I take that to mean. Something beyond just what is on the surface. I take that to mean that they were lying there together, exposed, vulnerable, transparent, and yet there was no suspicion, no resentment, no antagonism, no jealousy, no fear, no shame. Not about their equality in their roles or in their, in their image bearing or in their distinctive roles. There was peace. There was contentment. They were naked, but they were not ashamed. Now, the reality is, is that if the curse of Genesis 3.16 is the problem, then the cure is John 3.16, right? The contentment and peace to a relationship is restored as a husband and wife live together under the salvation and lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to ultimately fix the war of the the sexes and the curse that we find in Genesis 3.16. That in Christ, we are reunited and that in Christ, the true character of the husband's leading and the woman's helping actually end up being discovered.
0: So look real quick, flip over your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, this section
1: that is sort of famous, starting in verse 22, about the way believers, husbands and wives, should relate to each other, but not broad-ranging, zooming in on some very specific things. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So I would say, women, do you know why the Bible commands you to submit to your husbands?
0: The reason is, is because you're bad at it. You're not good at it, okay? You, you in your sin... In the curse, in your self-seeking, just like it told us,
1: you tend to usurp. You want to push against the authority that God has instituted. Again, that word submission is a dirty word in our culture. But it shouldn't be because submission isn't shameful. In fact, it's the normal relationship. What did we just find out in verse 24? It's the normal relationship of Christ and his church. We submit every single second of every single day as Christians to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There's nothing shameful about submission. In a very cosmic, hard-to-understand, easy-to-say-something-accidentally-heretical way, the Son incarnate submits to the will of the Father. Jesus is a submitter. Okay, The church is a submitter. Submission isn't an evil or a dirty thing. Submission is a noble calling, and there's good and glory that we find in it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body.
0: Husbands, do you know why the Bible tells you to love your wives? Because you're bad at it, right? You're not good at
1: loving your wives. You have a tendency in your own sin, in in living out the curse To use your authority to dominate people, particularly your spouse. Christ shows us, though, that the true meaning of leadership isn't about honor or preeminence. It's always about service. It's always
0: about sacrifice. To love your wife and lead her is to give your life for her. Male headship is intended to sanctify the wife, bring her closer to
1: Christ, more completely set apart for him. So it's funny, uh, we went last night, we took the girls and the kids and James, um, to, um, a, a musical and it was up at the Bijou in Knoxville and it was a production of Hello Dolly. Has anybody ever seen Hello Dolly? All right, A few people. Okay. Uh, so there's a Streisand, Walter Matthau version from the 60s or 70s or sometime. Um, and it's a musical. And then basically the whole thing is about the the silly ways that people see gender and marriage and relationships and all these different kinds of things. And there's this great scene where the Walter, Walter Mathau character, uh, his name is Mr. Vander Gelder, is singing this song about the woman that he is going to marry. He's an old man. Um, but he's gonna get him this this new wife, okay? Um, and he sings this song about her. He says this. takes place in the Victorian era, so you know, women are very genteel and the big dresses and, and very put together. And he says this: the frail young maiden who's constantly there for washing and blueing and shoeing the mare. It takes a female for setting the table and weaving the guernsey and cleaning the stables. Oh yes, it takes a woman, a dainty woman, a sweetheart, a mistress, a wife. Oh yes, it takes a woman, a fragile woman to bring me the sweetest things in life. And then this chorus erupts and they say, so she'll work until infinity, three cheers for femininity. Okay, we have this picture that happens in this story and it's hilarious. Why does he want a wife? Why does Mr. Vandergelder want a wife? so that she will do all the garbage jobs that he doesn't want to do, okay? Um, again, a picture of this domineering kind of idea is he is sure that he needs a wife so that he can basically, there's this great line in it where he says, let me see if I can get it right. He says, marriage is a bribe to make a housemaid feel like she is a householder. And you're like, Whoa. That's a messed up view of marriage, Mr. VanderGelder, okay? Um, but that's the point of it, right? He sees women as, as basically he just needs a maid. He just needs somebody to come and do the work that he doesn't want to have done. To domineer in a way to where he rules over her and she does what he says. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. And give my life as a ransom for many. So reality is this. Husbands, we give our lives as a ransom for one. And we are told that we should love our wives because oftentimes we're not very good at giving our lives as a ransom for one. So again, you might say, well, Ash, cool. Why are you talking about all this headship stuff and submission stuff? Like, I'm just... I've been getting some elbows from my spouse throughout the sermon and and I'm sideways looks and our car ride home is going to either be, you know, an argument or silence, um, one of the two. So why are we stirring the pot with this stuff? Um, well, I think the reason is, is because now more than ever, our culture needs to see biblical pictures of both male and female and particularly of husband and wife. So as we, we continue to see, man, we have lost our minds when it comes to sexuality and gender in our, in our culture. Uh, I saw this statistic the other day. Um, my grandparents generation, which is, you know, variously called the greatest generation, um, and the generation right after them, the silent generation, uh, less than 1% of people identified
0: as LGBTQ plus. All right. Um, boomers, 2%. Gen Xers that's me four percent millennials that's many of you ten percent Gen I or
1: Gen Z the the generation that would include my children my particularly my girls, um, maybe a couple of y'all in here who are college age twenty percent of people identify as LGBTq one in five. I heard a comedian the other day make the comment, by the year 2050, we're all going to be gay at this rate. Now, again, that's a little on the nose, but here's the scary thing about it. I'm not sure that he's wrong. We have a culture that is being indoctrinated, and it starts with our children typically into these understandings of human gender and sexuality
0: into these understandings of what is appropriate in terms of our lifestyles and sexual conduct. And there is going to be a toll. There's going to be a cost
1: to these things at some point. And here's my worry. My worry is, is that this thing is an out of control bus And there are various voices in the culture that are stepping on the brake, and the brakes are gone, okay? And there's only one thing that's going to stop this bus. And the scary thing is, is I think the thing that's going to stop the bus is the crash. The only thing that's going to stop this bus, outside of the uh, stepping into an awakening to a revival, is going to be when this whole thing crashes, And an entire generation or two of young people hit their 20s and 30s and all of a sudden realize I have ruined and wasted my life because of all the things that Twitter and Facebook and my friends at school and my teachers at university told me were good, normal, and right. And now I realize it was all garbage. And the reality is there's no way to go back at that point, okay? Yes, in the grace of God, we can start to do some unpacking and we can start to get rid of the baggage that is there and we can start to realize, hey, there is there is a future, but there may not be any way to redeem the past. And that is going to be, these, these aren't nebulous things, right? This is the lives of hundreds and thousands millions of people in our country. So I would say the reason why this is important, the reason why we need to stir the pot a little bit is not only to know and believe and have a solid understanding and opinion of these things informed by the scriptures in light of Jesus Christ, but also we need to make all the more effort to give a compelling picture of biblical manhood and womanhood and a compelling picture of biblical husband and wife marriages, okay? There are massive forces pushing against these things, massive cultural forces. We haven't even, that's just zooming in on the LGBT stuff, right? There are many things that we've talked about before that are at least or more a problem. The effects of contraceptives on the world. And again, not saying that there's not proper uses for that. But as we've said several times in sermons, the sexual revolution didn't start in the 1960s, okay? It probably started in like the 1760s, but it started in force in the 1950s with the, the widespread use and availability of, of the pill contraceptive. Because it disconnected human sexuality from responsibility for bringing children into the world. The hookup culture right? The ease of divorce, pornography, there are obviously economic factors that play into all of these things. But the point is, is that at probably no other time in history, maybe at the beginning of the church, into the sexual chaos of the first century Roman world, um, has it been more important for us to say, marriage is a good thing, The traditional and biblical roles of husband and wives are a good thing. Family is a good thing. Having children is a good thing. We need to lean into those things. And maybe we will call some people out of this thing before they get too far down the track. Maybe we will keep some people from ever entering it. But I hope also is the case is that when the crash happens, that we will be a place that can be a place of refuge. That we can bring people in. That we can share with them the goodness of the gospel. And that at some way we can be a we can be a uh, a, a hospital, right? We can be a um, refugee center for the people who are refugees of the sexual revolution. So what I want to do is go to Lord in prayer. And just ask him that he would work in these things. I keep on, I'm, I'm more and more convinced with the lack of it in my own life, but man, I hope you pray about these things. Like I hope that your prayer lives, while God wants us to talk to him about our immediate daily familial personal concerns. And there are also these big things that we need to be calling out to God and asking for his mercy and grace in these things. Because man, we've got a, we've got a mess on our hands. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, um, asking him to to show mercy uh, on our on our children, on a generation um, and asking him to help us to be people who demonstrate and display
0: a compelling vision of the goodness of marriage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I pray for um, working backwards. I pray first for our culture,
1: for our world. God I pray for the reality that um, the voices that speak contrary to your word, the voices that speak in a way that is is the opposite of the way that you have created and designed us, um, those voices. Uh, in our world today, seem to have the largest platforms. They have the most reach. They have the most influence. God, I pray that you would move in such a way to wake people up to the seriousness and the dangers that we are seeing all around us um, in terms of these things. God, we ask that you would convict people's hearts um, that they would that they would know the truth of who you have called them to be, who you have designed them to be, and that we would have a culture um, that opens its eyes to the fact that the emperor is not wearing clothes, that we would turn from those ideologies and live according to the way that you have called us in your word and the way that you've designed us. God, I pray for. Um, the young people, particularly in our midst. I pray for um, the students in my youth ministry. I pray for um, the kids that they go to school with. God, I pray for my own sons and daughters, daughters and son. Um, God, that you would protect them, that you would put a hedge of protection uh, that includes both wisdom and virtue and righteousness, that you would watch over them um, according to your grace and in light of your word. God, and I pray for myself. Um, I pray that uh, me and Christy, um, that we would be examples to a lost and dying world of the goodness of marriage. God, I fail in any number of ways on any given day. And yet I pray Uh, that you would sanctify me now that you would make me a more loving husband. And that as you do that, that particularly the young men in our community, but that everybody would look and see the way that you are using marriage in the lives of the people of our church. God, that you would see the way people are living according to the goodness of the roles that you have for us, that you would see, uh, that people would see the way um, we are living in affirmation of the of the biological um, necessity of, of the genders that we uh, were born with. God, and that people would see those things and that they would recognize that there is peace and
0: contentment. And goodness that they would be, um, God, that they would be attracted and
1: compelled by those things to the truth and the goodness of the way that you have created the world. God, there are so many other aspects of this that we could pray for. And I, and I pray that we would, that as we go from this place, this would be a regular part of, of the way that we call out to you. Um, we thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for the way that you guide your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: And I shall Son.
1: Amen. Hope you have a great evening, um, a good week. Um, I know it's kind of an odd one, um, especially one to throw you a curveball like that in the middle of the psalm series. Um, but I think they are important things. Um, I think there are things that are critical in our culture right now. Um, and um, we need to be mindful um, and, and uh, be ready to give a biblical understanding of these things as, as we have opportunity. Um, have a good week we'll see you Sunday hear this benediction as you go may the Lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you turn his face towards you and give you peace